0: We've never had so many conferences and symposiums and committee meetings. Uh, If committees could take care of the situation, it'd been taken care of a long time ago. You know what a committee is, a group of the unfit, appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. And the more they get together, the more they come apart. Will Rogers used to say, one sure way to prevent wars is to abolish peace conferences. Well, I think that's a pretty good suggestion. Somehow the idea has gotten around that if we can talk things over enough, that'll settle all the problems. And uh, the books about how to bring up children, written by people who never brought up any, uh, can explain all the uh, mischief of Junior, for instance, in high-sounding terms. Everything you know if you just understand it. Uh, Junior bit the meter man. Junior kicked the cook. Junior's antisocial now, according to the book. Junior smashed the clock and lamp. Junior hats the tree. Destructive trends are treated in chapters two and three. Junior threw his milk at mom. Junior screamed for more. Notes on self-assertiveness are found in chapter four. Junior tossed his shoes and socks out into the rain. Negation bad and normal. Disregard the stain. Junior got in Grandpop's room, tore up his station line. That's to gain attention, see page 89. But Grandpop seized a slipper and yanked Junior across his knees for Grandpop hadn't read the book since 1893. <laughs> and the title of that is On Being Behind with One's Reading. Now, it may be a good thing to get behind without reading once in a while. Uh, But we can explain everything today. The burglar, when he breaks into your home, he means no harm. He's just hungry for fellowship. (laughs) The gangster will throw his gun away if you have a chat with him. Dialogue, ah, that's the word. That's the answer to everything now. War can be prevented if we have enough semi As long as they're talking, they're not shooting. But if I remember correctly, the shooting started at Pearl Harbor while they were talking in Washington. The big word today is reconciliation. It's an unpardonable sin to disagree on anything. You're supposed to just smile a smile, and as you smile, another smiles, And soon there's miles and miles of smiles, and life's worthwhile if you but smile. And according to this doctrine, Elijah would have had a panel discussion with the prophets of Baal. Our Lord would have worked out a program of peaceful coexistence with the Pharisees, and Luther would have had a summit conference with the Pope. These apostles of reconciliation imagine that communism can be won over by negotiation. But communism is moral cancer, and there is no peaceful coexistence with cancer. If you don't get the cancer, the cancer gets you, and there's no peaceful coexistence with communism. Those who would have us forgive communism tell us that Jesus forgave the thief on the cross. He forgave one thief on the cross, the repentant thief. Jesus Christ was and is the great reconciler. But before we consider what he came to reconcile, we do well to know what he did not come to reconcile. Some things, dear friends, are not negotiable. They're not settled but compromised, they cannot be arbitrated, they are irreconcilable. Righteousness and unrighteousness, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? The only way that unrighteousness can have fellowship with righteousness is by becoming righteousness through faith in Christ who becomes our righteousness imputed and imparted and implanted when we're born again. Light and darkness. What communion hath light with darkness? There are no twilight zones with God. Black and white have never been smudged in the indefinite grave. Right is still right and wrong still wrong. Truth and error cannot be reconciled. The same fountain cannot send forth both bitter water and sweet. Two cannot walk together except to be agreed. The New Testament takes a firm stand against false doctrine in language utterly foreign to compromisers today who would blend into one fellowship, men who doubt or deny the word of God with those who claim to believe it. Jesus did not come to reconcile the church and the world. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Concord is the Latinish form of the word in the original from which we get the musical term symphony. What symphony hath Christ with Belial? None you've heard of the unfinished symphony this is the impossible symphony what part hath he that believeth with an infidel the temple of god with idols friendship of the world is enmity with god whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of god if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him now in this day of amalgamation and togetherness there are some things you just don't get together i'm a little concerned over the fact that i don't hear much blunt straightforward preaching anymore uh, that names the sins of our time. Charles G. Finney has a great sermon on how to preach so as to convert nobody. <clears throat> he said, "Preach about sin, but never name any of the sins of the congregation." They'll all go out checking their heads and saying, "Sin's mighty bad," but they won't do anything about it. But you name something, and somebody will go out mad, maybe. But anything's better than nothing. Just mean it. When Jesus talked to the woman at Jacob's well, he talked about the water of life. That's a good subject. <clears throat> Where's the best place to worship? That's a good subject. But she didn't get under conviction until he particularized, as the old preachers used to say. He didn't generalize. He said, go call your husband. Uh-oh. She'd had too many of them already. That was the trouble. I found a book the other day by R.C. Campbell, one of our great Southern Baptist preachers. <clears> he <throat> used to be pastor in Hickory, North Carolina. Went out to Texas. I believe at Lubbock. Pastor eventually, and mighty man in our denomination. And in this book, he talked about modern evils. Now, this has been 40 years ago. And a lot of water's run under the bridge in 40 years, and he named them. He even named the theater, help us. theater when most of the church members go now, dancing, all the rest of it. Uh, Sam Jones, I stopped at his grave in Cartersville this week on my way over here, that mighty Methodist preacher. Marty Ham, Billy Sunday, they named it. You heard Billy Sunday, some of you old timers name it here in Spartanburg in 1922. He not only talked about drunkenness, he fought the business. I don't do that anymore. Today we're trying to mop up the floor and leave the faucet running. Then he went after the swords. He wasn't elegant, oh no, anything but. I sure would like him to hear, hear him one time again say, as long as i got a fist, I'll hit it. As long as i got a foot, I'll kick it. As long as I've got a tooth, I'll bite it. And when I am fistless, and fruitless, and footmen, I'll gun it, till, it goes to, till I go to heaven and it goes to hell. Now that's not elegance, you know, really. You say nobody, you couldn't preach like that today. How do you know nobody's doing it? How do you know whether they work or not? I'd like to hear somebody try it for a change. And in this day when leading churchmen that I could name, go to great trouble to assure us that the New Testament does not teach total abstinence, well, regardless of the pros and cons of that argument, that crowd doesn't need any encouragement which they can twist to suit their purposes. If you've had any, you've had too much. But, uh, you see, my Lord didn't come to reconcile these elements. Uh, He said in Matthew 10, 16, I send you forth not as white sheep among black sheep, I send you as sheep among wolves. The Bible is full of vivid imagery, and many of the figures are from the animal world. The mule, the dove, the sow, the fox, the sheep, the goats. Evil men are spoken of as wolves, and God's people as sheep under the great shepherd. 23rd Psalm, John 10, the sheep of his pastor. I suppose there are no other two animals so unlike as wolves and sheep. Opposite ends of the spectrum, the wolf is the symbol of all that's vicious and violent and rapacious and destructive, and the sheep is a figure for all that's gentle and innocent and peaceful and benign. There's no way on earth to establish peaceful coexistence between the wolves and the sheep. They lie down together in the kingdom age, Isaiah 65:25. And the sheep won't be inside the world either. But they're not going to do it now. And there are those who try to establish liaison and rapport between the world and the church, evil and good. They try to smooth out the differences. They say, well, the uh, good's not so good and the bad's not so bad after all, so let's not make such a fuss about it. The worlds are out to destroy the sheep. This idea that this world is kindly disposed toward the church is a lot of eyewash. The true shepherd does not invite the wolf into the fold in the hope of establishing communication. He laid down his life for the sheep. It's about time we got wise to what we're up against in this world of darkness. We're up against, and I like the way Phillips puts it, the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. We're living in a demonized world masterminded by the devil, we ought to know what we're up against. I don't believe in overrating your adversaries, but I don't believe in underrating them either. I heard of a fellow who had a little dog who was always getting into a fight and always got licked. And somebody says, not much of a fighter, is he? Oh, yes, yeah, said good fighter, just a poor judge of the dogs. And I think if we don't know something about what we're up against, we're going to get licked every time. Sometimes these wolves wear sheep's clothing, Matthew seven fifteen. They creep into pulpits and into churches and would deceive the very elect. Satan as an angel of light is doing more harm than he ever does as a roaring lion. Paul warned the elders of Ephesus against trouble in the church. Trouble from the outside, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise. That's trouble on the inside. Trouble from the outside, trouble on the inside speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. We need to watch evil from both directions. And so you see, the, the real issue is very definite in the book. All this race issue, there are only two races in the sight of God, the once-born and the twice-born. That's all God sees. You might as well try to describe the sunset to a blind man, play music for a deaf man, talk nuclear physics to a wooden Indian in front of a cigar store, as to talk about the things of God where a man never has been born again. Doesn't know anything about it. And so much of our dedication is cheap. I sometimes think we Southern Baptists have almost rededicated ourselves today. We marched down the aisle and promised God everything in the book, and not much happened. And usually it's old Adam on parade. And God couldn't use old Adam if he rededicated himself a thousand times. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble have ever been told. There are four kinds of people the Bible says won't get to heaven in big numbers. The rich, God's got nothing against money, but it's pretty hard for a rich man to become poor in spirit. Not many wise because they try to get their head first. You don't get into the kingdom of God head first. You get in heart first. The only thing I know that's got its head and heart in the same place is cabbage, and you're no cabbage. I'm then not many mighty. How many presidents of the United States can you think of tonight who you believe were born again, spirit filled, New Testament Christians? Not many mighty. Not many noble, boasting of their ancestors. Ancestors, all right. The trouble is, usually, like sweet potatoes, the best part's usually under the ground. But anyhow, that's not going to take you to heaven. And why has God not called many of these folks that no flesh should glory in his presence? That's the idea back of it all. The flesh cannot glory in God's presence, and it furthermore says, and this ought to be placarded in every church over the country, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, the flesh is the old nature you were born with. Not the body. Don't get mixed up. You have to have a body to run around in. But the flesh, is that old nature you were born with, and you cannot please God in that old nature. Now, a Christian may do business, and he has to with people of the world in the shop and in the store, may belong to the same profession, may go to a Beethoven concert (laughs) or uh, on a fishing trip, but when he comes to the matters of the soul, Christian sheep have no fellowship with wolves, He's a citizen of another country, he's part of another race, he's a member of another nationality. Dr. Mr. Laterno used to say that what worried him so much was not the wolfishness of the wolves, but the sheepishness of the sheep. And that bothers me a great deal too. Too many Christians are pretty sheepish about it. The world, John says more about the world than anybody else in the Bible. You'll uh, uh, read only 47 mentions of it by Paul, Uh, only 15 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John 105 times. And uh, usually it's the word cosmos from which we get cosmogony and cosmology and even cosmetics. But Jesus said in John 17, and if you're having any problems about popularity, let young people always remember this. You may be respected by the world. That's another matter. But Jesus said... If the world hates you, remember that it hated me. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've called you out of the world, therefore the world hates you five times in one verse. The only place I know where a world shows up that much. Now, how are you going to get around a verse like that? You can't. Our Lord told us in John 17 that we've been saved out of the world, we're still in the world, we're not of the world. But we've been saved out of the world to go back into the world to win people out of the world, and that's the only business we have in the world. Now, what did Jesus come to reconcile? And there is no better word. Even the living Bible does not have another word for reconciliation. just calls it reconcile, like everybody else. And people today say, well, we've got to... Uh, drag the language of the gospel down in the dust to make it acceptable to young people. They don't understand all this, which is so ridiculous. I hear them say the idiom of Isaac Watts is not understandable to this generation. Well, they're still studying Shakespeare in the old idiom. Law students are studying legal terminology. Uh, medical students are studying the medical terminology, and that's pretty rough perfectly ridiculous. It's an insult to the intelligence of young people to say that, especially under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they can't understand what reconciliation and, and all the rest of it means. Well, what does it mean? Man is not right with God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Man is a rebel against God. He's estranged from God. How are you going to get a holy God and a sinful man together? Man couldn't do it, but God was in Christ. Reconciling the world, the sinless Son of God, uh, who had no sin in him, took all sin on him in order that we might be broke to God. His Son became our sin. That's the whole thing. Now, there must be a moral basis for reconciliation. Some people say all that's needed is repentance. Well, that's what we must do to be sure. But uh, repentance is not the basis of it. When a man breaks the law, he has to pay a penalty just saying, I'm sorry, isn't going to take care of it. So that other big word, propitiation, comes in, and it refers to the mercy seat in the Old Testament, sprinkled with the blood of a lamb without blemish. The judgment seat became a mercy seat, not as a matter of placating an angry God, God wasn't mad at us, and Jesus had to die to put him in good humor. God himself in Christ provided the sacrifice of his Son, and so man is reconciled, no longer estranged. He is the propitiation for our sins. And since he is, there was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. He did it that sinners plunged beneath that flood, might lose all their guilty things. He did it that that dying thief might rejoice to see that fountain in his death. He did it that you and I, though vile as he is, might wash our sins away. And uh, that precious blood will never lose its power, that all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. And ever since by faith I sow, the stream is flowing room supply, redeeming love has been my theme and will be led I And when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing his power to save. I am a minister of reconciliation. That's my business. I'm an ambassador. And so are you. You're in the ministry if you're a Christian. Your business is to be a minister of this message of reconciliation to get men right with God and with each other. I said here yesterday, and I want to amplify it just for a moment, that the cross represents our relationship to God, the vertical beam of it, and then the horizontal beam, our relationship to each other. Man to God, man to man. I'm not a Catholic. I don't carry a crucifix, but sometimes in my meditation, and I walk a great deal, when I'm having a little checkup on my own spiritual life, I find myself saying, Lord, has everything this way? between me and thee. And then I find myself asking, how am I doing this way? How's everything between me and everybody else? Try it sometime. Nothing between my soul and the Savior? So that his blessed face is not seen? Charles Tenney, the great black preacher of Philadelphia, wrote that. His son led singing for me years and years ago, Grand Rapids, Toledo, Rockford, Illinois. I love to hear him sing his dead song, Take Your Burden to the Lord and Leave It There, Nothing Between My Soul and the Savior. And when Charlie Tinley Jr. sang it, I got under conviction every time. Now let me ask you tonight, I get bothered about Bible conferences. I'm in them all the time. We're not here to be entertained. We can have joy indeed, and I believe there's a proper use of humor and all the rest of it, but we're here, I hope, tonight, to face God and the challenge of his word by the Spirit. Let me ask you, can you think of any point of rebellion tonight between you and God? Now we all sin, we are overtaken by faults. those must be confessed and cleansed by the blood too, but I'm thinking right now, is there in your life a point of rebellion against God? You just don't get together on a certain issue or maybe several issues. And you have a controversy with the Most High and you're living in an argument with God like Simon Peter when he said, not so, Lord. Well, that's a silly statement because if he's Lord, you don't say not so. And if you say not so, he's not Lord. Is there someone listening to me who is at war with God on some point in your life? Then the vertical relationship is in bad shape. What is it? Sin of omission? What you ought to do that you won't do, the good that I would or do not? Is it sin of commission, the evil that I would not do? That I do. Is it the sin of the Spirit, the disposition, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness that our brother spoke about tonight, the fear of God? Is it a doubtful thing? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Is it something between you and somebody? Jesus said if you bring your gift to the altar, bring your envelope to church, and somebody is at odds with you, and you're at odds with somebody, hang on to your offering until you get right with your brother. Now, that sure would ruin a lot of collections on Sunday morning in some churches over the country. Hold on until you get right. That's what the Lord says. I heard a woman say she was teacher of a ladies' Bible class for 10 years before she ever got right with God. Think of that. She said, I went to an old Methodist soldier and knelt, and I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere. I'll go to India or go to Africa, anywhere you want me to go. She said, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I don't want you in India. I don't want you in Africa. I want you to get right with Susie right here in the church. And she said, I hadn't thought about that. I started all over. Lord, I'll go to Africa. She said, I'd rather go to Africa than get right with Susie right in the church. And who should come in and sit down beside me on Sunday but Susie? And Susie said, I hear you've got religion. And I said, well, if I didn't have, we wouldn't be sitting beside you here today. And we both, as she put it, got religion and got right with each other. And that was the beginning of revival. Now, is that your trouble? Is there something between you and somebody who said it's his fault, her fault? Jesus didn't say anything about whose fault it was if thy brother hath aught against thee. <clears throat> Have you tried it? It's a lot easier to to give $100 to foreign missions than it is to apologize to somebody. Sometimes husbands and wives need to get this relationship straight. Are there two here tonight? Things aren't going well. You ought to go home from this meeting and have a little prayer meeting and say, let's get this horizontal beam of the cross right in our lives. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe you've had a critical spirit about somebody. What is it? Know oh, the discord and the tension in our churches today and the terrible things we say about each other. Oh, like our brother was just saying, the sins of the disposition of attitude of the Spirit. I was in Arlington, Virginia, and a dear Mennonite brother came every night to the service bless his heart. I could tell from his collar and so on he was one of those dear people, and he brought his recorder along, and he gave me a little track and he said, Maybe you'd like to use that. And I said, I want it. Let me keep it. And said that one night after the carpenter had stopped work, the carpenters, too, all got together for a little conference. And they were all mad, and some of them ready to quit. Some of them said, I think we could do without Brother Hammer. He makes so much noise. Somebody said, I think Brother Gimlet, he could go to, he's insignificant anyhow. We don't really need him in the work. Somebody said, well, Brother Plain, I don't like him, he's always on the surface. Never goes down deep about anything. And then they said, and there's Brother Rule, he's always measuring everybody, and we can do without him. And somebody said, Sister Sandpaper, she rubs everybody the wrong way, we ought to deal something with her. And then there's this brother Saul, he's got such a cutting edge and so it went the next morning the carpenter came back and got them all together and said let's let's get to work and they, got a, they had another conference and they said we're ashamed of ourselves we are laborers to get this and that's what we are and well, let me ask you another sincere tonight now And there's one thing worse than not going to church, and that's going to church and doing nothing about what you hear. James says, if you hear it and don't do it, you deceive yourself and you go out the door worse off than you came in. I don't want you to do that. You, you, I hope, have come to be able to go out better than you came in. Well, then if you have heard it, do it. Is there something between you and God tonight? Not only occasional sins, but a, a habitual, continuous rebellion on some point. <clears throat> Is there something between you and somebody else? Face the cross and stay there, Jesus. Keep me near the cross. That's the only way that I know of, that to have revived. And that is the Ministry of Reconciliation.